Welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast. It's been a while, but I would like to welcome Emma Cole back onto the show. Well, I feel actually I'm coming back onto your show because I haven't really been doing many of these. And as somebody pointed out to me the other day, a very close friend of mine who shall remain nameless, but it's called Max, he said that the other presenters, he was warming to them more and he actually thinks he might like them better. So how are you doing? <laughs> Hello, James. What an introduction. Um, I'm fabulous. Uh, yeah, I've missed the podcast, to be honest. I feel like lots been going on. There's lots been happening at Cyclist. It's quite an exciting time. Indeed, it's an exciting time. We're looking at, well, not looking, we're doing a, uh, a re- redesign, they call it in the trade, of um, Cyclist magazine, which you can subscribe to at cyclist.co.uk anytime you like. It's a great magazine. Emma and I both write for it. It's wonderful. And the pictures, because you can't see us, you, we're just voices, but the pictures in Cyclist magazine, that is literally what we trade off. And we've won awards for that, actually. Just going to throw that out there. So well done, us. And you can really partake in our reflected glory, if you like, by subscribing. Um, but no, I just, there are lots of things afoot at Cyclist. Uh, one of them, of course, is the podcast today, which is with a guest called James Hibbard, who is an ex-pro, used to ride in the States, and he's written a book called The Art of Cycling. And before I tell you a little bit more about James, because this is an interview that I just did on Method, because uh, Emma was gallivanting around the world, possibly losing a bike in Tunisia, I think, at about that point. That I've just regained happy days. Woo. Whoa, the ribble is back. <laughs> the ribble is back. Happy day. Thank God. That's what I'm going to say. Safe and sound? Safe. Just as glorious, was on it this morning, just pootling around, just free as anything. I bet the Ribble's pleased to see you as well. That's the thing. Poor little bicycles just sat in airports, unclaimed. Just so sad. It was a big odd reunion. Excellent. Trumpets, fanfares, take it out for a posh lunch? The works. Excellent. But anyway, no, James. so James Hibbert is our guest. <laughs> and he's written this wonderful, amazing book called The Art of Cycling, which is a bit like Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Have you read that? Have you come across that as a title? Can't say I have, but should I? Should I be looking out for it? Well, I mean, you weren't born in 1970, so and neither was I, actually. <laughs> but this was a book that was always on my dad's shelf. It was a massive book in the 70s, written by a bloke called Robert M. Persig, because you are only a genuinely accomplished author, if you use your initial of your middle name, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's a kind of, uh, it's a, yeah, it's a, like a, it's not pseudo-philosophy, it's like a philosophical work that takes place around this guy going on a road trip on his motorbike with his son and his mate. In this book, The Art of Cycling with James Hibbert, James goes and buddies up with a couple of his old racing mates from his track racing days on the American team. And he goes on a road trip down the West Coast of America. But he kind of uses that as a springboard to tell you about his life um, as a pro, going up through the junior ranks, battling with things like doubt and depression, and also with an era of doping which was, you know, absolutely rife by the time James retired in 2005. Um, by the way, big advocate, anti-doping advocate, had a lot of correspondence with Paul Kimmage, who wrote one of the original um, anti-doping kind of uh, tells, whistleblows. So he min- mixes this with kind of philosophy. He's, he's studied philosophy subsequently. He is now a philosopher. And he tells us about what it is to cycle, why he cycles, why even tubular tyres are actually extra special in a philosophical sense. But it did make me think of what it means for me to cycle, which I talk about in an interview. But I'd now like to throw that to you, Emma. What does it mean, as someone that's spent, goodness knows how many like hours and hours and hours on your own recently on a bike, what does cycling mean to you? Freedom. That, for me, is like why I love cycling. That's it. <laughs> I thought you were just going to leave it there. Freedom. Yeah, gonna... I was like, honestly, I'm fr- I wish I could, you know, give you more waffle, but I can. But um, yeah, simply it's freedom. That's why I love it. It's just you, your bike, your legs, wherever your mind's can, you know, the road, whatever the, the path, wherever you want to go. And that for me, is like, you can do anything on a bike. You can go up anywhere pretty much and you can whack it on your back, pick it up, whatever. And it can take you places and you can put your whole, well, half your house on it, you know, strap it to your bike, off you go. I just think, yeah, for me, cycling is all about the freedom and the independence. Obviously, asterisks there, you have to look after your bike. But yeah, that's that's why cycling is awesome, is you can just be utterly free. You can be in some incredible landscape, the wind, the weather, whatever, and it's just you, your bike, wherever you want to go. Well, that is a wonderful answer. I'm just going to let that sink in for a few seconds. Let that sink into the listeners' ears for a few seconds. And then consider, 
asking that same question to a guy that studied philosophy and has ridden his bike professionally too. And then we can compare and contrast and meet up back at the end, Emma. I can't and, wait. And uh, see what James Hibbard had to say. So without further ado, James Hibbard, ladies and gents. But yeah, I'm, I'm also almost a bit embarrassed. I was, I was like, do I tell you that I did philosophy? Because I think, because <laughs> obviously, you know, like a, like the diligent journalist I am, I've looked up your Wikipedia page because that's all of the information that anyone needs to know. <laughs> so you and I are not dissimilar in age. I'm 38 and you were born okay, in 81. Perfect. So you're 41. Right. 40, yeah. So I almost feel like maybe we studied philosophy kind of around the same time and I'm pretty sure you can remember recall write very eloquently about much more of it than I can uh, I, I'm sure hope I'm hopeful I'm hopeful on that front <laughs> but it's funny I feel like it's good that we're similar ages and in, in both sort of perspective from cycling yeah and also I think perspective frankly from like where the discipline of philosophy has shifted from I mean I don't know what what the sort of sense was and where you went to university. But in America, it was very much divided between a sort of analytic philosophy camp and a much more continental philosophy as literature camp. So in terms of how I sort of thought about the discipline, that divide always figured prominently and I think definitely figures in the art of cycling. Sort of my landing on a much more continental philosophical take rather than just matters of logic or set theory or something like that. So the book takes the form, anyone that's listening to this may well have come across the book in the 70s by um, is it Robert Persig. That's right. Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which is also one of the best titles of any book ever. So you're, you're, kind of, you're on a road trip with your buddies, effectively. You've picked up your bike after a number of years off it, and you're going to go with a few I mean, they're ex-colleagues, they're old pros as well, which you raced with some uh, buddies from when you were much younger. And you're going to go on a road trip down, uh, I guess it's Highway 1, ultimately, the Pacific Highway. That's right, along the California coast. And as, as a kind of, you know, just, a, just, as a, just as a thing to do. But that takes its own, that kind of threads your own journey in real time with your journey through cycling from being a youngster with the American Trap Program, American Olympic Program. And so it kind of bounces in between general musings about the world on two wheels and then effectively what's going on in your road trip at the time. And I know that's an incredibly hackneyed, horrible way to describe it all. So I would now like to pass it over to you and say, can you give your your best kind of explanation of not what it's a, what the art of cycling is about, but how you sort of describe its intention and where it sort of starts from? What's its jumping off point? So I wanted to jump off and explore two things. Essentially, the, as I mentioned before, the sort of meta-meaning and purpose of developing a tangible skill. I often sort of preface when asked about the book uh, with the fact that, hey, this could be a book about playing the violin. It could be a book about playing chess. Any tangible activity that one really works at to develop a high degree of skill. And I think that the reason that the tangible activity here is so important and so intriguing for the moment that we're living in culturally now is that everything has become so divorced and intangible. Everyone spends so much time on their phones, on the internet. The sort of idea of cultivating um, a skill, I think, is often lost and often underregarded. So in a sense, too, it ends up, the book ends up being a critique of the Western philosophical drive towards making things abstract. When we go all the way back to thinkers like Plato, we see very clearly that ideas and concepts are valued more than particular things. So you have 2,500 years of philosophical thought saying this particular table is going to decay and is really not all that interesting. But the concept, the abstract idea in our head of a table is in fact far more valuable. And what you get in 20th century existentialism with figures, Sartre being very prominent among them, is an inversion of this that says, no, the actual thing you're looking at that you can feel and touch and that was crafted by a human being is in fact more important than the idea of a table. So I think by engaging cycling, 
and a tangible skill and seeing what value you derive from that, you start to also interrogate this sort of idea of, or this tendency in Western philosophical thought to believe that ideas matter more than particular things and even particular people. So I very much wanted to to explore that dichotomy and to, in some sense, not just criticize things, but to try and redeem reality itself, to redeem existence and to bring back everything that's, that people are sort of in denial about when you're spending time on Facebook or cultivating something that's far more abstract than, than what's involved in riding a bike or making a table or playing chess. Yeah, no, and that, these, these are thoughts that unfortunately or fortunately occur to me on a regular basis, this kind of this gulf that we have, um, we've kind of been backing away from life as much as yeah. life kind of is moving forward from us. You know, life doesn't go anywhere except for forward and it's changing at incredible speed. But we've kind of engineered the way that we approach that change to almost pull ourselves out of it. You know, I, it's like at the point at which we stopped doing hospital corners when we folded sheets onto beds and we got fitted elasticated sheets and we moved from a mechanical toothbrush to an electric toothbrush, that was the tipping point in humanity where everything just got that little bit too comfortable. We didn't really have to do very much. And I remember my philosophy teacher at college saying, you know, one hyperextension of where we might all end up one day is we'll just be giant thumbs because all we'll need to do is press a button just for it and that button will do everything. Whereas reading The Art of Cycling and thinking about my experiences on a bike, it feels, even though it's a very novel, kind of abstract pursuit in itself, cycling, it doesn't have any real-world connotations, it feels like an incredibly real grounding experience. And I wondered how you would kind of flesh out an answer to a question, why does cycling mean anything at all to you? I think that that's really hits that question really hits the fundamental point that I want to engage in the book, which is on a personal level, why did I do this? What does it mean? And for me, the answer is that it can't be cashed out into anything that's particularly purposeful. And that that in a sense, in scare quotes then, is its purpose. I think that that we're always conditioned. I say we, but I, I think there's cultural tendencies involved here sort of we're conditioned to think that something has to be cashed out in terms of economic benefit in terms of now my I've done yoga therefore my mental health is better therefore I can send more emails so I think that that the sort of quest for uh, things to be able to be cashed out in some practical currency you're already sort of starting from the wrong orientation. And I think that just the intrinsic experience of cycling is the answer itself. So there's, there's, I'm sure as you know and have followed, every you know, three to four weeks it seems like there's uh, in the New York Times or the Sunday Times some op-ed about defending the humanities and the value of should we still have philosophy majors, English majors, etc. Or is this in a sort of modern industrialized workforce, technocratic workforce, just entirely pointless? And I think that many of those start from a, a bad premise, which is, well, if you have a philosophy degree, you'll end up being a better manager or something like this. And again, I think that's that's sort of to my point about cashing things out in a currency that's that's losing from the outset. So I think that what's interesting about about cycling, about some of the other sort of tangible pursuits I've mentioned, is that a lot of times they don't have any essential purpose to them, and that that destabilizes us from wanting everything we do in our life to to have some practical end. So it's al- almost cycling's pointlessness that gives it its merits maybe not the right word but it it gives it its essence it gives it its it gives it its value indeed i mean so i think that that sort of asking about the point of cycling is akin to asking the point of visual art i mean you can you can't really imagine someone 
walking into the Met or the Chicago Art Institute and saying, well, what is, what's the point of this painting? So I, I think that you can draw on sort of aesthetic theory as an interesting parallel to realize how fruitless it is to say, what's the, what's the point of this? And, and that's not to say that, that cycling or aesthetic appreciation or aesthetic creation are the sort of superfluous decoration on life. I think that that's another wrong track that people often go down. It's far more than that. It's, it's what intrinsically, I think, makes life worth living and the reason that, in fact, you're pursuing all of these tangible ends, food on the table and a reasonable income and everything else. And I think that those are the, the pursuits and things that make life living and make us most fundamentally human. And bring us back to this fundamental idea of loving the world and being alive. So this is something that, yeah, crops up a lot through the voice, through the lens of existentialists like Nietzsche. So rewind 90 years-ish. Nietzsche's writing about the 1930s. A little bit earlier. Nietzsche dies actually in 19, 19, symbolically dies in the year 1900. So sort of on the threshold of 20th century modernity. Ah, okay. Okay. He has a brilliant death, doesn't he? Describe his death quickly to me. Tragic, I should say, not brilliant. (laughs) So Nietzsche is often thought of as being sort of hard hearted and someone who talks about striving and achievement and this sort of Teutonic glorification of militarism. But in fact, his, his break from reality takes place in, in Turin, Italy, where he sees a horse being beaten. He then collapses into some sort of psychotic state and spends the last decades of his life in an institution and under the, the care of his sister, no longer really able to articulate a whole, a whole lot. Certainly his days as a productive intellectual ended the day of his, his breakdown and prior to his breakdown in, in Turin. Which sort of strikes me he's not the best advert for following a kind of following almost like his own philosophy. Because I think he's is is he the is he on the on the page of you know staring sort of life in the eye, existence in the eye and accepting all of it. And in a very reductive sense, he's seen something that is very starkly life and with a disposition such as his where he is perhaps much more attuned, much more sensitive to life, you can almost argue you know, that tips a very sensitive soul just over the edge. It does. And I think that, that whenever thinking back, and I think this holds not just for Nietzsche, but for a number of artistic figures who seem to have seen too much or, or too deeply, you think of Sylvia Plath or Kurt Cobain or a number of people that seemingly have suffered greatly and made a choice having seen that suffering. And I think that in the case of Nietzsche as well, there's something very frightening about what happens to his mental state and perhaps a bit of a a warning against sort of staring into the abyss that he describes. And, And not only, as he says, to quote him, that it stares back at you, but the question of what degree of philosophical reflection is becomes unhealthy or pathological. And in spite of my interest in philosophy and writing a book about it, I think there certainly is a, a degree of philosophical reflection that becomes unhealthy and leads one down a path of depression. So I, I certainly have had my own mental health struggles, and I, I resist philosophy's sort of self-help titles. I, I don't know that stoicism or existentialism uh, is going to lead you to, to happiness or a great deal of insight. I think that, that philosophy is very good at diagnosing problems without necessarily coming up with solutions. So one of my big goals of the book was to, in fact, criticize philosophy and show how cycling in an engagement in the tangible world is, in fact, redemptive in a way that intellectual pursuits aren't. So take us, if you can, without going too deep in it, because obviously there'll be lots of listeners who, lots of these themes are, are relatively new um, 
take us how through Nietzsche, what was Nietzsche railing against to get to the point where he's yeah trying to sort of stare life in the face and take the good with the bad and recreate himself in something new? What was he trying to recreate himself into, which everyone else wasn't doing at the time? So two things. I think that, that Nietzsche, first of all, to understand Nietzsche's basic position is to understand him as being not simply anti-Christian, right? He's often sort of cited for saying, God is dead. But it's also the, the next clause in that is God is dead and it's you and I who have killed him. So Nietzsche very much mourns the lack of the sort of failing belief system of Western Europe at the time. And he thinks that there's, there's a great loss there. And he pushes back against this sort of platonic privileging of abstraction, be that theological abstraction in the form of a, an unseen Christian God, or even platonic abstraction in the form of the idea of a table mattering more than the table. So Nietzsche cares about individual artistic greatness and self-creation in the face of a human being having no sort of recourse to unseen things outside of the world to solve his or her problems. So Nietzsche's very much pushes people and believes people ought to push themselves towards creating their own meaning and towards creating works of art that redeem the world. One of Nietzsche's big heroes was the composer Richard Wagner. So this, this idea of the world is, is in and of itself meaningless, and we have the responsibility to impose on that blank slate some artistic grace and beauty that redeems our existence and redeems the world. So would Nietzsche have seen a rider in the Tour de France as upholding ideals that he himself held dear? I do think so. I think that certainly Nietzsche talks about strenuous, vigorous exercise in the, in the Swiss Alps, and very much in spite of being someone who lacked a great physical constitution by all accounts, he celebrates the sort of vitality of outdoor exertion. And I think that where it becomes even more interesting for Nietzsche in regards to cycling and, and how he would probably regard a Tour de France cyclist would be this idea, again, of training as self-creation. That every day you sort of have, you set your own ideal, which is, be reductive, but something like great cyclist, capable of winning an alpine stage of, of the Tour. And then every day your behavior follows that. You wake up, you train, you do everything to optimize your life and your body in order to achieve that. So while there's perhaps an artistic element lacking that Nietzsche very much emphasizes, I think you can think of sport itself as art and self-creation and self-formation in a way that, that very much squares with, with Nietzsche's thinking and philosophy. Is it important to be aware of that as you're doing it, as you're doing your art? Is it important to be aware of that's what you're doing? Because I wonder, thinking about yourself, thinking about you, you know, getting, getting your cycling chops as a teenager versus you now as a published author, philosophy graduate, etc. You've now got a different lens on looking back at yourself then. Presumably you as a 14, 15-year-old you, you weren't thinking you were on this Nietzschean path to self-creation as you were doing turbo sessions, staring at a brick wall. What, what were right. you thinking? What, what, was your, what were you driving towards when you were that age? And how do you see that same motivation now as an adult, as a much older adult? This one's tough because it's easy for me to sort of take recourse, take sort of personal cover under philosophical thought. I think for me, um, my parents... My home life wasn't the best, and cycling was very much an escape for that and a way to sort of have an identity. And I think that, like a lot of other junior athletes, sort of working up at a pipeline, 
it was this sort of feedback loop of I'm the 13-14 California state champion. I sort of feel as if I am now something or someone. And the sort of stair steps just keep increasing from that positive ego feedback. And I think now that certainly my not great obsessive, depressive qualities were held in check and pseudo-positively channeled into sport. But I do think that now having stayed in touch with a number of ex-pros more successful than myself, and now at sort of nearing middle age, reflecting back on what that life was and and what motivated myself and, and many others, I don't know. I do question how healthy it was because I think it's very easy to sort of kick the proverbial can of mental health down the road until it sort of wallops you when you're, you've left the sport. The structure of training uh, that's provided by training, the microcosm of, of feedback where it's easy to think that success as an athlete is net more important than it in fact is. I think there's a lot of, not detrimental, but certainly dangerous aspects to elite level sport do you uh, i mean uh, this is a this is a pretty big broad question but do you almost feel like you need a a kind of impressionable or susceptible mindset or or a certain type of mindset which excels at sport i.e you need you need something that you're kind of almost maybe running away from to be able to bury yourself so deeply that you get to the point of excellence where other people will just let life distract them and they'll get to a point where they're quite good and then they'll, you know, a kind, a kind of flawed genius. Is that something that defines a champion often? I was far from a champion, so I don't want to speak for champions. <laughs> but um, I do think that, yes, there's a certain, you mentioned, use the word impressionable. And I think that that really does resonate ring true because one as a young cyclist sort of comes into a system. And I think that really believing that the sort of boundaries of life or the boundaries of that system are what allow you to sort of continue to, for better or for worse, push yourself. So I think that that you have to have this mindset that this is the only thing that matters. This is my way out, whatever that means, whether that's from mental health or from poverty uh, or something even more tangible. So I think that that certainly you have to think that this is do or die and that your, your sort of proverbial life depends on this thing. Otherwise, it, as you say, it is too easy to sort of walk away from it or to become distracted or to become more well-rounded, frankly. <laughs> um, so I think that that you're certainly on to something on on that point. And is cycling? This is a kind of question that keeps me up at night. Is, is cycling as a sport specific? Like, does it attract specific types of individuals that other sports don't? And the reason I that occurs to me is because when I think of cycling, I just see you know the, the pictures that epitomise it are people just suffering in black and white, not wearing any helmets, grinding up steep alpine passes on bikes with three gears or worse yet flip-flop hubs <laughs> right. and it's just all to do with the kind of the grandeur and the reverence given to suffering and to be able to be that person that can suffer i would suggest you're a very different person to someone that maybe plays football or tennis not that those people also can't suffer too but is is cycling just a, actually like a strange outsider to sport in the types of people that it attracts and the types of success that it breeds? I'm inclined to think so. I mean, I've always sort of thought of cycling and running as essentially what intrigued me early on. I mean, we were talking, certainly wasn't reading Nietzsche yet when I was 12 or 13, but what did attract me was this idea of suffering and essentially cycling being nothing more than a contest of who could suffer the most. And I found that 
fascinating and addictive. And it seemed to, in spite of not being raised in a religious household, it seemed to take on almost this moral quality to it. Like if you could suffer more, you were somehow a better person. So I had, I think, very early on strange connections between suffering, success, and moral victory. So I think that it does attract outsiders who are primed for that sort of thought process and who are interested in exploring the limits of their own suffering in a way that, as you say, like tennis, basketball uh, are completely distinct from cycling, running, triathlon in that regard. Yeah, and I think also the the sort of journalism it attracts, the storytelling cycling attracts is also got this strangely kind of like pseudo-poetic kind of intellectual bent to it in a way where other sports, again, the kind of environment, the oeuvre or whatever the word is that surrounds them is a bit is a bit more functional. Cycling has this strange, like you said, it's a good word, the strange kind of like morality to it, which sometimes I think is wonderful and other times I just think is sort of bullshit and I kind of think, why is why does cycling why does cycling think it's so special? But then a book like yours makes me question that and think, well, maybe it is. But throwing that back to you, do you feel like cycling is more special than other sports, running, ultra distance type stuff, accepting? I think what makes cycling more interesting than a lot of other sports is sort of two pieces that we've danced around. I think there's the suffering element, which does make it more interesting, but as you say in ultra distance running there's some other parallels but then i think what makes cycling more interesting is also the history of the sport so the feeling that no matter how much a rider is suffering now that it's not unprecedented so i think that that sports that lack the tradition of cycling not to pick on triathlon here but that certainly comes to mind i think that what makes it interesting and what makes it relatable is the thought that, yes, in 2023, you're seeing Rider X suffer on these same slopes. But that's the same uh, exact same climb that Pantani suffered on, that Merck suffered on, that Ancatil suffered on. And I think that these sort of links of suffering across generations end up bringing a lot more significance to the sport and making it more relatable and make the sort of bonds that one cyclist, that even a viewer of the race feels for the riders makes those bonds incredibly unique. Yeah. And it also occurs to me that cycling is one of the few sports I can think of, if the only one, where one of your adversaries isn't your fellow rider. It's the mountain. It's nature. And that I think that's possibly unique i mean i don't know maybe i guess like open water swimming or sailing or something you know the sea is your nemesis you're fighting that as well as you're trying to best ben ainsley in a in the america's cup but it's a wonderful element of it that is that like you say is the steeped history but i also wonder from your perspective being um you know coming into the sport in as a junior in the 90s if you found it still very hard as an american even though you'd had riders like um, Andy Hampston and Le Monde kind of paving the way for Americans, or if by that point actually you were kind of accepted, did you feel like an outlier within the outlier sport? It was definitely a different sport even in America then. And there was still, in the sort of pre-internet days, there was certainly still like a continental European mystique that I think is is not quite the same as my at, at the current moment is my impression. Yeah, I think that I mean I'm thinking just even something as silly as I remember the US national team coach we got a new set of of wheels for the entire national team training wheels and everyone had said, well, you never want to be on a steep velodrome on on anything but a tubular tire. And and then suddenly one day we were delivered clincher spoke training wheels and we're told like no this is okay this is what the french national team is doing therefore it's fine (laughs) uh no more justification than that needed so 
Yeah, I think that that for sure in late 90s, early 2000s, there still was a sense of the United States, Americans don't really know what we're doing in cycling. And we better, even at, at high levels of the sport, the best we can do is through the grapevine, here's what the French are doing, we better emulate that. So there certainly was still some of that going on. And again, I can't emphasize how different the sport was in terms of this sort of outsider counterculture vibe in the era prior to Lance Armstrong. Cycling had yet to become any sort of a status symbol. Bikes were far less costly. They were still handmade. So it was very much a different culture within the sport of cycling in the United States at, at that time in that pre-Armstrong era. So there's this wonderful thing about cyclists. We can never admit when we don't know something. And it's just like me and ketones. So someone would mention ketones and I'd be all like, yeah, I know what that means. It's basically just an energy supplement. And it is. But as I've dived into a bunch of research from ketones experts, HVMN, turns out there's a lot more to it. So it sort of works like this. Usually we burn carbs when we cycle, then fat is a backup. Carbs is easy, chuck it straight in the furnace. But for fat to become fuel, we need to turn it into glycerol and fatty acids first. I've got low levels of ketones in my bloodstream as I speak. But what HVMN scientists have done is to work out how to literally make ketones and to put them into a sports drink. They call it HVMN Ketone IQ, and you can drink it during a ride or before a ride. And the idea is that instead of burning carbs, then fat, then ketones when you're cycling... With Ketone IQ, your body gets a big helping of energy-rich ketones to use alongside the carbs and fat all at once. So it's kind of three sources of energy, not two. So it's the reason why I've heard about World Tour teams like Jumbo Visma using ketones. They can help you effectively ride faster for, for longer. Right now, you can save 30% off your first subscription order of Ketone IQ at hvmn.com cyclist. That's hvmn.com slash cyclist for 30% off. And if you want to learn more about how it all works, HVMN's got a brilliant podcast that's worth a listen called Health Via Modern Nutrition with Dr. Lat Mansour. It can be found at all the usual places. And don't forget that the Cyclist Magazine podcast comes from Cyclist, which is also a magazine which you can subscribe to and get every single month. It's filled to the brim with epic rides, gear reviews, and more. Plus, we're also a website, cyclist.co.uk, and you can check out our brilliant social channels for up-to-date pro, tech, and everything else coverage. That's Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Threads, TikTok, Strava, and LinkedIn. Now, taking a little sidestep, something that occurred to me um, in the book is you alight on an example of uh, Francesco Moser, the Italian, great Italian rider, doing and successfully taking the hour record in 1984. And he works with a doctor, another um, Francesco Conconi from a, a local uni, uh, university, I should say. And they do lots of things with um, training with heart rate, which is brand new back in those days because you can suddenly have a wire, well, not a wire, but you can have a, a heart rate monitor you can wear on a bike. You don't have to be in a lab. So they can do all these things. They can work out his lactic threshold. Well, that's one of the th things that Conconi comes to and then is applied throughout the sport. So he's got this great sports science. But then he also lets slip around the time, hey, by the way, guys, I also re-infused my blood, i.e. I did something along the lines of what we you know we now just call like classic doping. I'm not sure if he used EPO or how they did it, but he's effectively boosting his red blood cell count to be able to ride you know longer and harder than well not longer for an hour, but ride faster than Eddie Merckx did in 1972 in New Mexico. Fast forward you know ten years or so, and EPO's on the banned list. On the one hand, back in 1984, Moser has done something that maybe someone like Nietzsche would go. Nice one. You've really recast yourself. You've lived this artistic life. You've suffered and you've found joy in suffering and you've done something brilliant and you've done it for its own sake. Then someone like Lance Armstrong's caught doping because the rules are you can't take this thing. I would assume Nietzsche would go, ah, 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 sorry, Lancey boy, that is not cool. 
or would he? Like, is philosophically, what's what is the difference there beyond just a charter of rules from a French federation that says on Tuesday this thing's okay and on Wednesday this thing isn't? I think there's actually a clearer line between Murex and Mosier than there is between Mosier and Armstrong. So I think that where you start to see a big difference is in this sort of analytical approach to the sport. So I think that, and you can argue exactly where the sort of threshold, where the tipping point there is, but I think that what's unique about Mosier and how he, in that record attempt, fundamentally changed the sport was that every aspect of it became analytical and I mean that in a very specific way, and scientific. So what I mean by analytical is everything's going to be, we have a new science called aerodynamics. We're going to test every piece of equipment prior to the record for that. Uh, we now understand and muck with human physiology, aerobic capacity, and are going to optimize that. So I think the real difference is this idea of taking an entire event, an entire experience, and teasing apart all of these individual pieces, methodologically, scientifically, versus Murek's going and, and having a special bike built, let's use some slightly lighter tires, I'll do some motor pacing prior to it, and, and have a crack. So I think that that is, you can look at the, at the Murek's record, and, and certainly I'm not... I'm clear that Murek's had his own potential infractions and everything like that. I'm not saying that the, the sport was pure and clean and beautiful in 1975 and suddenly something got awful. But I do think that what changes is this tearing apart of every aspect and ability to optimize all of those aspects. And you see that in Mosier and you see that in Armstrong in a way that, that was not present through the Murek's era. Gotcha. I'm going to let that one sink in for a little bit. So I think that, that that sort of, where this relates to Nietzsche, and I think where it becomes quite interesting, is all of these scientific methodological interventions all require some degree of abstract thought, right? You've got, you've got a scientific theory which is divorced from reality, which is informing those decisions. You understand abstractly that in human beings in general, more red blood cells transport more oxygen, therefore we're going to do X, Y, Z. So you have these sort of, in the process of analysis, you have a lot more abstraction baked into it. So I think that, that when you're looking at, at Nietzsche as a sort of potential arbiter for is this an artistically inclined, continental philosophy reading inspired type athletic performance? Or is this an analytic, scientific, platonic one? I think that there's, there's something very interesting to consider on, on those points where that, where that threshold perhaps is. So Nietzsche is probably more of a fan of you know, Fausto Coppi uh, than he was Miguel Indurain. I would think so. I would think so. I think that's the that's the way to to parse where Nietzsche's investment in in any given cycling era would be for sure. Bravery and self creation and self expression as opposed to a team of scientists. Yeah. So this idea carrying on with it that there's something particularly not special, but there's something unique about cycling. In the way that it requires its athletes to sacrifice, if not outright suffer, is that healthy? As we've you know, as we've touched upon, there is a high incidence, um, and particularly recently. If we saw Marlene Rusa, SD Works rider, stopping in the time trial in the in the worlds at Glasgow, effectively kind of mentally just cooked, and she's someone who's been quite open about um, her trials and tribulations with mental health. Um, and there's other riders who, unfortunately, have just literally not been so lucky. Are we partly responsible, or even wholly responsible, as the audience for these people and their lives? Because we're asking them, we're baying for their, you know, in a kind of Roman <laughs> sort of Colosseum way. 
do it and do it harder and faster and hurt more and we will applaud you. Are we actually part of this problem? I have to reflect on that because I've never, I've thought about it sort of from the inside. But I think that, I think that the entire sort of ecosystem of the sport rewarding that I suppose means like some degree of responsibility. But I think that fundamentally what compels riders to get to the point in the ecosystem where any fan or journalist is even aware of their existence, I think that that the sort of early die was already cast is my initial thought on that. And, And certainly it can be someone who's at a breaking point can be exacerbated by an opportune jab by a journalist or a very public failure. But I don't think that fundamentally that that is, I think the problem is is more personal and more related to achievement and suffering and and something a bit more insular. But I mean, speaking for myself, like I can remember having just a, a god-awful final year of racing. I had Epstein Barr, I had been doing 40 hour weeks when I was 19 or 20 years old, it was, I was just done for. And I remember just a particularly unkind article about how poorly I was going and how deeply that cut. So can sort of public journalism have an effect? Yes. But I think that, that the things that the seeds that sort of compelled me to be in that position ran far deeper and far earlier than any sort of public perception or or perception of of the cycling ecosystem, whatever that might be. Yeah. So how did your career go in terms of the the learning curve and the rise and the peaks and then the kind of, I guess, the, the tapering or maybe the hard stop? So when did you think, I am a cyclist? If someone says, "What? who is James Hibbard? He's, he says, I'm a cyclist. And when did you say, Actually, I'm something else. I think that that it's probably by the time I was 16 or 17, it came up. I was able to go through the ranks quite quickly at at the local velodrome I competed at at Hellyer Park. I think by the time I was 16, I was a Category One, um, racing with with the pros and uh, a Category Two on the road. So also racing with with local pros. So I think that sort of early talent proclivity, and then the sort of first trips to the Olympic Training Center certainly validated that. And it was sort of heady to see the women's national basketball team, Olympic gold medalists in gymnastics, and to just sort of feel like, okay, I've, I've at 16, 17 years old have made it. And as soon as the U.S. Postal team started performing well, I think there was a whole cohort of juniors about my age who thought, okay, we're on, we're on trajectory towards road careers, living in Monaco and doing everything that, that Armstrong and, and crew are achieving is sort of, we're now being primed for that in this pipeline. And looking back now, based on my talent, the drugs, everything else, that was clearly fictional. And I think it's very interesting to go back and if you look at the cohort of athletes born between, say, 1979 and 84, there were very few Americans just because who were successful European road careers, just because of the sort of proverbial air being sucked out of the room by postal and then the postal scandal. But I had very much felt that that I was at least going to be a, a have a competent long-term career on the track. I signed with a professional team called Shackley in 2000 with a bunch of my American track heroes on it. Colby Pierce, Jamie and Jonas Carney, Kent Bostick. So riders that I had very much sought to emulate, racing criteriums and, and on the track in America. And then I continued at university for about four years on a slightly smaller team that allowed me to compete with the national team at the same time, sponsored by the Olympic Club, before going to the HealthNet team um, after I graduated. But I think my my real, looking back, the real flaw was just simply 
training far too much. And I think that the physiology has, tra- has changed a great deal. Without hyperbole, there were at training camps, 35, 40 hour weeks plus gym work. It was just a crazy amount of intensity and volume that at least my body could not respond to and adapt to and handle well. So, um, yeah, I would say overall it was a precipitous rise as a junior and 19, 20 year old, and then kind of riding that wave into oblivion, obscurity, and retirement when I was, I think, 24, 25. And how did you sort of, re- I guess, like, yeah, readjust, recalibrate to, in inverted commas, the normal world? Because presumably you'd gone from having a lot of things, you know, just on a, in a very practical sense, having a lot of things done for you, someone assembling your bikes, someone making sure you got fed, <laughs> booking your next bed where you're going to sleep. Suddenly you crash bang, you're back in the real world. How did that change affect you and how did you deal with it? It's quite difficult because even sort of setting aside that routine and that sort of insular lifestyle, there was the sense when you go back to your hometown and you're at a party or a school event or meeting with friends, there's a sense that you are James the bike racer. So that sort of, I think, baked in sense of identity was, at least for me personally, very attractive and very difficult to move on from. And I think my, the fact that I continued, I worked for Giant Bicycles, later, who was my, my last sponsor on the HealthNet team um, in a marketing capacity, and then later on Specialized Bikes, later on another sponsor, Bell Helmets. So my staying involved in the cycling industry, I think also made that, that process more difficult and more psychologically complex. And it was candidly not easy. I mean, it was something that, that I'd worked for, an identity that I'd worked for, and to relinquish that and to also sort of fundamentally question on moral grounds on intellectual grounds on practical grounds like okay what what the hell was this thing that i was so invested in was part of what i wanted to explore in the book and certainly something that i grappled with because reflecting back now as a parent and as someone whose values have frankly changed the degree of narcissism and sort of self focus involved in being an elite level athlete is not something that I would wish to repeat. And, and, and a part of myself that is hard, frankly, not to reject with my current set of values and beliefs about the world. That's interesting. So, yeah, I mean, you say you wouldn't repeat it. And it almost sounds like there's a kind of episodic you, you then and you now. Uh, and that's actually, there's a, there's a brilliant quote. I'm not going to leave through the book to try and find it, but there's a brilliant quote. Um, Eddie Merck's basically saying, I kind of look at, you know, I, I look at myself in the mirror effectively and I see, I sort of see me and then other people talk to me and they see someone else. I've got this dual self, which I find it difficult to, to reconcile. And from someone who, you know, he was the first cyclist I ever really clocked and heard of seeing you know, Eddie Merckx written on the down tubes of bikes long before I really knew who he was. It strikes me as really sad that that's kind of almost sounds like a kind of um, an animal in a zoo. Yeah. Well, it's, it's worse. It's a prison. I mean, it, I, 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 especially in this context, I don't, don't want to name names, but I know some incredible Americans who had incredible careers and Olympic medals, Olympic gold medals. And it often strikes me as I'm incredibly lucky that I was not more successful because you, it's so easy to end up being pigeonholed and bound to something you did as a 20, 24 year old for the rest of your life. And escaping that success sounds like a great problem, I'm sure, to a number of people. But frankly, to me, it just sounds like an absolute nightmare. Being forever someone who succeeded at a certain time point and not being able to fully grow and move on from something that you did 
essentially in all of it, in, in every case in one's youth and and sort of the feedback you you get if you go to local hardware store local bike shop there you are as a 40 50 60 year old being made to sort of reenact who you were at at 22 25 or 30 just sounds like a incredibly miserable fate to me yeah as you say i think a, a prison or a prison is a sort of is a good way of describing it. And it often strikes me how difficult it seems for our heroes in sports to transcend, well, not transcend, just to, just to move out of their sport. I mean, you, can, you could call it sport or you could call it just industry. It's one thing in life to maybe go from being a teacher to a car mechanic, but it's another thing in life to go from being someone that lifts the World Cup to working as a teacher. And, and lots of people don't seem to be able to do it. And again, it kind of makes me question in my mind, as much as I see this strange beauty in sport, because sport just exists, it's completely arbitrary in a sense. It exists for its own sake. It performs nothing else. I know that there's these ideas that it's a way for people to effectively have a kind of safe form of conflict. It's a way of like fighting wars. But it's, that's, that's part of it. But it's something else. It's just this brilliant pursuit and expression. But at the same time, where it's got to in the world, you know, hugely because it's so popular, it therefore has an economy attached to it. And that economy is worth multiple billions of billions across the globe, across all these different sports. That then it just leads to a point where, yeah, we've both created heroes, but we've also kind of created prisoners. We won't let them go. We have created a buzz around sport that makes sports so important that sports participants then get kind of locked into it and we don't let them out. And if they do get out, they don't often seem to be very happy. And I don't know what your experience is with people that you worked with, you know, your colleagues, your mates on on different teams, who I'm assuming a lot many of them will still be involved in cycling. Do you think that that's a relatively fair assessment? I, you know, do you, do you see those people that are still involved in cycling as happy, or do oh, you feel absolutely. like, yeah, I I, I think that. I've saw it and tried in a way that that in so public a forum is frankly almost like embarrassing to to not be involved in cycling a number of times. And it's surprisingly difficult. I mean, the idea of the economic idea of opportunity cost um, is something in this regard that I think I failed to appreciate when I was a, a bike racer. I had sort of thought, hey, I'm going to do this now and whatever I wish to do after, I won't be that old. The truth of the matter is something far more complex. And I think as industries have become more specialized, things have become, industries have become more hiring, managers have become more risk averse, everything like this. Um, the idea of, well, this person was a hard worker, elite level athlete, and Let's go take a risk on them as a financial advisor or whatever. Name any industry. That's just simply not the reality. So I think that when we're talking about ex-riders who end up working in the sport in any capacity, be that for a bike brand or as a team director, whatever the case might be, it's, it's, I guess I want to preface that with my experience and the experience of others, that it's trickier to extract yourself than one might imagine. That, that even if you sort of want to say wholesale, okay, I'm going to move on from this point, from this pursuit, it's, it's easier said than done a lot of times. And the relationships that have been cultivated are predicated on that idea and that identity of you as a cyclist. Yeah, but I do think there is one way out, and you've demonstrated it, which is going to university, studying philosophy, and then writing a book that carries cycling through with you with it into something new. So cycling, not to sound flippant about it, which I just did, but it now holds a, a much different place in your life, um, it strikes me. What is the meaning of cycling to you now? Meaning for me now is something that's intrinsically beautiful that's healthy and that connects me back to reality. And there's a, uh, uh, 
big distinction that I make between being a bicycle racer and riding a bicycle. And the former is complex and no longer that interesting to me. But the latter is, I think, incredibly important. And I'm happy that I have that skill to fall back on. And it still feels incredible to get on a bike that's measured up to me where the brake hood's in the right position and it feels like home in a great way. Perfect. I think that's a great place to end, James. Thank you so much, James. It's been really incredible to talk. It's been great. That was James Hibbard. Thank you very much, James, for coming on and having a chat. Yeah, I mean, mind-blowing stuff. Well, not mind-blowing, mind-stretching stuff, I think. Um, I find a lot of that very challenging uh, in a good way, but it also kind of makes me feel quite stupid. Once upon a time, (laughs) as dear listeners, you learn, I studied philosophy and got a 2-1, like 80% of everyone at the time. Um, And I'm not really sure what I did with that degree. But I did harbour dreams of maybe writing a book that hasn't happened. And I now realise, having read James's book, The Art of Cycling, I'm too stupid to ever pen such tales. No way, I'm going to stop you right there. Not having that. Come on. Anyway, everyone's, what is it? Everyone's got a book in them. You could do it. They do say that. They do say everyone's got a book in them. I used to work for Brighton and Hove City Council as well. And they used to say that there is a half, a three quarters finished novel in every single hard drive at that council. <laughs> I thought you were going to say there's a councillor in everyone. <laughs> yeah, no, there's also a councillor in everyone. Some of the people doing being councillors, I'm not sure if they're professionally trained. So there is. But yeah, so I, I often thought, uh, yeah, I'll somehow blend cycling with philosophy and write a book. And I don't think that's going to happen. And the reason I don't think that's going to happen is because it takes a long time to write a book. And also, will I be able to write a book that was shortlisted for the Sunday Times Sports Book of the Year awards like James's was? Probably not. There's still time. It could happen. Okay. Well, like, it's just you. It's your desire to write it that I think is the most important bit. And maybe you don't have that desire right now. But tomorrow's another day. It could happen. That's got, I'm going to get that. I'm going to get that printed on a poster with some like geese flying in formation behind it. I'm feeling very philosophical now. <laughs> yeah, no, you totally are. But I mean, have you ever harbored? You're, you know, you're a paid up writer. That is your profession. Have you ever harbored dreams of writing a book? I have big time. I've written one. It's unpublished. I'm on. Whoa. Yeah, I know. Whoa, here she goes. <laughs> <laughs> feel a bit nervous now. <laughs> is that actually that's is that genuine? That is not. This is not set up. Is that genuinely true? This is 100 percent true. I've been writing like rubbish novels ever since I was a kid my first book was called um The Adventure of Mr Weaver that was my first book was Mr Weaver a a human or an animal he was a human and actually Mr Weaver (laughs) came to an (laughs) unfortunate death because he got crushed by a piano that fell down the stairs honestly it was it was a roller coaster of a novel that one Um, my goodness (laughs) yeah I know a lot happens Uh, but in all seriousness I yeah I've written a book I'm up to it's 10 chapters and I'm editing chapter five at the moment um I oh, started goodness. writing it a long time ago and it's one of these things I've done and then life's got in the way and then done again yeah and now I want to give it much more oomph okay right I don't I, I feel like technically right now we should be winding up this episode but I do just now need to ask you a few questions question number one do you know when starting out writing the book do you know where it's going to go and where it's going to end? Or does that change as you've written it? Or do you just start writing and see? I started writing chapter six first because I was super inspired. So I did Palma Year Abroad in the Caribbean, Martinique, stunning French island. And we'd done this amazing hike. And it just I just remember being like, oh my God, this is this is just unbelievable. I just filled with so much inspiration. And that whole island, the whole time I was there, I was so inspired. And I remember I sat on my like uni accommodation balcony, honestly, Caribbean, what a dream. Um, and I sat there <laughs> and I just, honestly, the words just fell out of me. It was unbelievable. And then I did chapter six, I think chapter seven. And then I was like, right, let's, because that was like the main story bit, that, yeah. you know, where it all gets the twist and all that jazz. Um, and then I was like, right, let's, uh, maybe I'll start with chapter one. I think maybe I did chapter three then. I kind of worked backwards, forwards, and then I wrote the ending when I was in Georgia last summer for my friend's wedding. Uh, I was in Georgia for a couple of weeks and I was sat in this amazing ranch in the middle of Georgia. There's a microbrewery as well. And suddenly, bam, the ending came to me. 
So I feel like the common thread here is you need to be sitting in particularly lovely places to write a book. And that's my problem. I'm just sitting in my home office in Bristol. Bristol's nice, but it's not like Martinique. Well, it's all it's all perspective, you know. I think it's wherever inspires you. It doesn't have to be like, you know, the most like sort of relative what is beauty and all that jazz. But it just depends like if you meet people, the smells, all that stuff. That for me is what really inspires me. There we go. And on the next episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast, we will talk about what is beauty. <laughs> I'm just going to interview Emma about her new book and her ideas around what what yeah what what beauty is. So tune in for that. You are the philosopher between us, so um, those questions are coming right back at you. Okay, well we'll sit down, we'll put we'll we'll pen a few ideas, and uh, we'll put together a special, um, incredibly lengthy um, episode where we're both very very earnest, and you realise at the end of it we don't actually know what we're talking about. Kind of like one of these episodes <laughs> regularly. Oh, what a treat! Right on that note, Emma, thank you so much, and until next time, ta-ra. And don't forget that the Cyclist Magazine podcast comes from Cyclist, which is also a magazine which you can subscribe to and get every single month. It's filled to the brim with epic rides, gear reviews, and more. Plus, we're also a website, cyclist.co.uk, and you can check out our brilliant social channels for up-to-date pro, tech, and everything else coverage. That's Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Threads, TikTok, Strava, and LinkedIn.